Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, uh, happy Labor Day. Uh, thank you to all you hard workers out there. I hope you guys enjoy your long weekend. My name's Chase. I am the Raleigh Campus Pastor. Uh, we just finished up Mike's amazing sermon series that we call Origin Story, where he took us through an entire book of the Old Testament every single weekend. Did you guys enjoy that? Awesome. Well, this week, uh, we are gonna be talking about something really important, something that is a vital part of each of our lives, and uh, it's a topic that's also foundational to our church, and it's so important, in fact, that we've included it in our church name. So our church name is Hope Community Church. It's the topic of community. And so I'm gonna be giving my perspective on community this weekend, and then Mike is gonna be here next weekend giving you a different perspective because it's that important of a topic. Uh, if you've been watching the past three weeks, uh, you've seen some awesome videos that have highlighted our small group ministry. You see, each fall, we as a church do a united push to get as many people into small groups as possible, and we call this season Group Connect, and it happens every fall. And so what I wanna do this week is dive into the topic of community, and I wanna show you how vital this aspect of the Christian life is, and cards on the table, try to get as many of you to sign up for a small group as possible. Even this week, it's not too late to do that. Now, I'm looking around the room and I can't see all of your faces, but I can see your eyes and some of those eyes are starting to roll a little bit, okay? Some of you are beginning to, to check out a little bit. So I realize that there are a ton of different people that are watching this this week. And when it comes to, to community and to small group, you guys are all over the map. So a lot of you are already involved in a small group ministry. If you are, can you go ahead and raise your hand if you're involved in a small group? That's awesome. You can do it at home too, great. Um, at, at this spring, we had um, well over 3,000 people involved in a small group. That's about 300 groups, or about 50% of the people that attend Hope on a weekend basis. So I think we can do better, but that's not too shabby. So if that's you, awesome. I think that these two weeks are gonna really help you approach your small group in a new and refreshed way. Uh, some of you are relatively new to Hope or to church as a whole. So maybe you're even joining for the very first time online this weekend. If that's you, welcome. Uh, maybe you've never heard the term small group before and you might be a little bit confused this weekend. Uh, we have a large amount of people that grew up Catholic and you guys don't have experience with small groups. Maybe you have little to no religious background and you've heard a little bit about small groups and it kind of freaks you out. Uh, sitting around a circle, sharing about your struggles and your heart issues and your deep, dark sin struggles like that. that that's kind of scary. That's what cults do, right? Not necessarily, but that's completely understandable if that's you. Hopefully by the end of this time, uh, you'll understand what small groups are all about and you'll take the leap to try one out. Here's the cool thing. You don't even have to live in North Carolina to join a group. Uh, we have digital groups starting all the time and that includes our high school groups as well. And then there's another third group. Oh, the lovely third group. You are the group that is comprised of longtime hope attenders or church attenders that are watching online. And you attend, or in this season, you watch faithfully. 
and you serve and you even give and you've sat through dozens of, of sermons on the topic of community, but at this point in your life, you just don't buy into it. Maybe you've even tried a group or two or 10 and you've walked away just saying, yeah, that's not really for me. You know, there's this awkward couple and they talked about their multi-level marketing company the whole time and tried to get some cash out of me. I didn't like that. There was this kid that kept sneezing on everyone. I was told there would be no kids or you know, the host had this collection of clown statues and had it right by the front door and it kind of freaked me out. So it's just not your thing. It's hard to fit into your schedule or you don't think the studies go deep enough. I hear that a lot. So there's a lot of different reasons but at the end of the day, you're here and you love hope or you love church but when it comes to small groups, you just haven't bought in. And if that's you, you are who I wanna talk to this weekend. Uh, because if I'm honest, that was me for many, many years. In fact, that can still be me today. And I think that this group, the group that's been around church the longest, I think that you guys are at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to small groups. I think that we pastors have actually set you up to fail when it comes to this ministry. You wanna know why? Well, here's a little history lesson. Uh, for those of you that grew up in church, which is not a ton of us, but um, do you guys know what we did before small groups? What was the ministry that happened before small groups? You can yell it out. Sunday school, yeah, Sunday school. You may not know this, but Sunday school was actually started as an outreach. And so in uh, rural areas, the kids had to work and they couldn't attend school during the week. And so the church stepped up to meet that need. So on Sundays, the church would teach Bible stories, but they would also teach reading and writing and arithmetic. Uh, but as more people started moving to the cities and these pesky laws came up called child labor laws, uh, Sunday school became a little outdated. Well, around the 1950s, some churches in America began experimenting with these things that we call small groups, where a small group of people would meet outside the church building during the week for the purpose of studying the Bible and just doing life together. But they didn't really catch on for a few more decades because old habits die hard. But around the early 90s, people began studying small group ministries, and they came up with some really interesting findings. They found that people that were involved in a small group, they grew more spiritually than those that weren't involved. They found that small group members knew the Bible better and were more willing to serve in different ministries. And they also found that churches that adopted small groups instead of Sunday school grew. They got bigger. So they found that people, like today, have a tendency to shop around for churches. And people would go from church to church to church, but once they invested themselves in a small community of people, they tended to stay. So churches that did small groups kind of closed the back door of their, their church. Less people left, so these churches grew. So small groups were sort of hijacked by the church growth movement, and every pastor that wanted their church to grow which is all of them, I mean, who doesn't want your church to grow? I've been to a few that might not, but most of them do. Uh, they started heralding the amazing benefits and the positive things that small groups would do for you. So small groups will change your life. Small groups will take you to the next level. Small groups will do this and small groups will do that. And that's been the case and that's been the message since the early 90s. So if you've grown up in church, you've only been told the positive things about small groups and none of the negative things. 
So you've heard talks and sermons that were basically like sham wow commercials, like small groups, they slice, they dice, right? Come one, come all, see the ministry sensation that is sweeping the nation. You can buy your ticket for the seat, but you'll only need the edge of it, okay? It's all these positive things about small groups and none of the negatives. That's why you're at a disadvantage. That's why you got freaked out when you tried small group that first time and it wasn't this earth shattering, amazing experience. It was kind of normal and you weren't prepared for that. Am I onto something here? Yeah, I think so. Now, a lot of what you have heard over the years is true and it is biblical and I do wanna take a moment just to reinforce that because the Bible is clear that Christ followers must be in intentional community. When it comes to community, the Bible is very, very clear. And you may not know this, but the Bible says that community is not just an added bonus for a Christ follower, but that every human being is actually created for community. It's a very important part of who we are at a soul level. Um, on the sixth day of creation, right before God creates Adam and Eve or man and woman, he has this conversation with himself. And this is what he says in Genesis 1, verse 26. He says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Did you catch the pronouns that God used when he was talking to himself? He didn't say, let me make mankind in my image. What did he say? Let us make mankind in our image. You see, the God of Christianity is different than any of the other gods that human beings have, have made up. A God of the Bible, the one true God, he is a community. He is comprised of a father and a son and a Holy Spirit. So he's a community of united yet distinct persons. And when we were created, we were created like him. We were created in his image. So we are designed to be in community, just like God. So fish were designed to live in the water. Human beings were created to be in community. It's a part of what makes us human. He makes this explicit in Genesis 2.18 where it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So when we see humans at their best in Genesis 1 and 2, we see humans living in community. Adam and Eve were in community with one another. They loved, they served, they protected, they gave, they shared. Being in community is part of what it means to be a full and a whole human being. But then something happens in Genesis chapter three that throws all that off. It's the first sin, it's the fall. And the fall threw everything off kilter, but one of the biggest effects of sin that we see in the Bible is the breakdown of community. Right after that first sin, we see that Adam and Eve, there was, there was, there was a turmoil in their marriage. We see Cain kills his brother Abel. We see wars, we see abuses, atrocities. We see people fighting each other instead of being connected to each other. They're divided from each other. And we see that that's one of the main things that sin does. It breaks apart community. It makes us think that we can do life on our own. It breaks apart relationships. It breaks our relationship with God, but also with one another. And we even still feel um, these effects today. That's what you and I experience. We still feel the community breaking effects of sin thousands of years after that fall. We still have wars, yeah, we still have murders, we still have stuff like that, but we can feel its effects in just the small things. I was thinking through this the past few weeks, I think that our culture, as much as we lift up, you know, coexist and all that sort of stuff, our culture makes it really, really hard to be in community. Sin has kind of reshaped our priorities and the priorities of our culture, and it's made small things 
into all important things, and because of this, we have become busy. We've become super busy chasing after stuff that doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. So we live in this frantic world, rushing from one thing to the next, eating meals on the go, constantly on the run. And this busyness makes it really hard to just maintain the relationships we already have, let alone start new ones. And add to that that we live in the age of social media. And in my opinion, social media can be good occasionally, but it's usually not, okay? I got rid of all my accounts a few months ago. Uh, we have tons and tons of connections to people, but connection doesn't equal community. I think, if anything, social media has cheapened relationships. Uh, Sherry Turkle, in her book, Alone Together, and I'm gonna be quoting a lot of authors during this sermon because I've been reading a lot of books on community lately, but she writes this. She says, we are lonely, but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked lives allow us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections and then easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. So what she's saying is we think that we're connected to more people than ever before when in reality we are not connected to anyone in a meaningful way. Who here feels better texting someone than calling them? All of us, yeah, someone calls me on my phone, I'm like, what is this, 1995? I don't wanna hear your voice, like, text me. It's because of that, that's what technology has done. That's an effect of the community-breaking part of the fall. And add to that the selfishness that sin brings. So my generation, I'm in our mid-30s, we're called the me generation. Uh, the reason is because our parents, uh, for the first time in American history, when their marriages got tough or unpleasant, what did they do? They just divorced. The divorce rate's actually been falling since 1980, where it was at its all-time high. So there were a lot of divorces growing up. And now our generation, my generation, has taken this desire for personal freedom that our parents showed us, and the freedom to bail on important relationships, and we have perfected it. As soon as we encounter the smallest form of resistance or conflict in a relationship, bam, we bolt. We're out of there. See, we're still experiencing the same breakdown in community that sin caused all those thousands of years ago. The data shows even now that three out of five Americans would say that they are lonely, that they lack those connections with other people that they were created for. And I would say that we feel that now more than ever with this social distancing and these lockdowns. We just know, there's something inside of us that knows we were not created to sit alone in our houses. No matter how big of an introvert you are, there, there reaches a limit. Our kids were not created to sit alone in front of a computer screen. We're created to be with other people, and that's not possible now, but we feel that. Do you feel that? But here's the good news. Jesus came to change all of that. So Jesus came to reverse the curse. And part of that reversal is restoring the type of community that we were created for. In fact, that's one of the most powerful effects of the gospel. So salvation, yes. Eternity in heaven, yes. But equally as powerful is community. Uh, Paul is the author of a book called Ephesians in the New Testament, and he's seen the power that the gospel has to create community through these two groups called the Jews and the Gentiles. And these two groups, they hated each other. They had a long history of war and fighting, but he has seen the gospel bring them together. He writes this in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that sin had put in place. You see, Jesus came to take away the barriers to true community, even the strong type of barriers that divide generations of people. So Jesus came partly to make community, true community, possible again. So in a way, and I don't think I'm overstating this, Jesus died partly to give you the gift of a small group, to give you the gift of the type of community that that exists in that type of group. In fact, that's one of the proofs that you are a Christ follower, that you are able to love and serve and connect with people and commit to people from all walks of life. Did you know that? First John says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another, because we're in community. The ability to love and to serve and forgive and bear with and connect with other sinners like ourselves is a defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christ follower. And even Jesus says this. In John chapter 13, he says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See what he does there? Jesus gives the watching world the right to judge whether or not we are really Christ followers, not by our theology, not by our Bible knowledge, not by our church membership, but by our love for each other, by our commitment to true community. And the New Testament authors understood this. That's why the New Testament spends so much time telling us how to do community. We did a series called Help Us a few, it was last year, uh, but on, based on the one another's, there are 59 one another's in the New Testament, 59 things that we are commanded to do with and for other people. There's love one another, honor one another, don't judge, accept, instruct, forgive, submit, teach, admonish, and however many more. And here's a crazy thought. You can't obey the majority of the commands in the New Testament alone, apart from community. And then there's the famous verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another, there's another one another, on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is just a handful of verses, but hopefully you see that being an intentional community is good for every single human being, but especially for Christ followers. For Christians, community isn't optional. And you know this, and you've heard this dozens of times, and here's where the rub happens. We read these verses, and we start to develop these amazing dreams of what Christian community must be like. The dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed, or how good and pleasant it is to dwell together with brothers in unity, or uh, we read about the New Testament church who had everything in common, and they sold their possessions for the poor, and they uh, they shared meals together day in, day out. And it sounds like this amazing, perfect thing, but then we step into a real community with real flesh and blood people and we figure out it's not all roses and butterflies. We find out the first time we show up to small group that community is difficult. It's not as easy as we make it sound up here on stage. And partly I think it's because the biblical view of community is not the type of community that we commonly think of. We think of community as a loose collection of acquaintances. So when I think of community, you know, when we think of community, we think of 
Ross and Rachel, and Joey and Chandler, and Monica and Phoebe, right? They're friends, they like each other, they like going to coffee, they don't, must not work during the week because they're always hanging out, but that's, that's community, just a group of people that like each other and hang out. In fact, that's the number one excuse I hear from people that don't wanna get involved in a small group. I got tons of friends, why do I need to be involved in a small group? What you need to know is that the biblical view of community is not necessarily a group of friends. Again, I think Sherry Turkle in her book Alone Together, she defines what real community is. She says communities, real communities are constituted by physical proximity, by shared concerns, um, in our case it would be Jesus, real consequences and common responsibilities. That's like a list of the top four things our culture hates. When the Bible talks about community, we have to see that real community is more like a family than a friend group. There's commitment to stick with it through the good and the bad, through the fun and the not so fun. And that's why many of us have never experienced true community because we've never intentionally committed to be a part of a group of people for the purpose of loving and serving no matter what the end result might be. But that's, that's, that's what real biblical community is. Ronald Rollheiser, I told you I was gonna quote a bunch of people. He says this, part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor is a liar, since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. You see, there's this dream version of community that we have, and then there's the real version of community. And the difference between those two is often what stops us from pursuing and committing to real biblical community. But let me let you in on a secret. Community was not any easier for the New Testament believers than it is for us. And I'm gonna prove it to you. Just look at the main example of community we get early on in the New Testament. It's, it's Jesus and the 12 disciples. And we read about that group of the 12 disciples and we think about how awesome it would be just to walk around with Jesus for three years. We think about how close they must have been, how tight-knit that group was, just like a brotherhood. But have you ever stopped to think about who was in that group of 12? Matthew chapter 10 gives us a list. We're gonna put it up on the screens. I'm not gonna read it word for word, but they range in age from early teens uh, into uh, kind of middle-aged. And so um, right off the bat, you would have these <sighs> dumb millennials or okay boomers, like there's that stuff going on. And you had your good Bible-obeying folks like Peter and Andrew and James and John. These were the hardworking, conservative, blue-collar guys uh, we, did, we do know that John and James, uh, they had a nickname called Sons of Thunder, so they had a pretty bad temper. Then there's Philip and Bartholomew and then Thomas. So Thomas is the doubter, he's the skeptic. And then we have Matthew, the tax collector. So Matthew's on the payroll of Rome. He was a traitor to the Jews' eyes, and he's not blue collar. Blue collar. He's a part of the wealthy elite. And so someone would serve the 12 a meal and James and John would dig in and Matthew's like, excuse me, where's my salad fork? Like he, did, he didn't fit in with a lot of these guys. Then you have James and then you have Thaddeus and Simon who were both zealots. Do you know what that means? They were violent nationalists who would carry out guerrilla attacks on Roman officials. They hated Rome. What do you think they thought of Matthew? 
And then you got Judas, who eventually betrays the leader of this group. This is a crazy group of people. This is not a natural group of friends. Like, take a Baptist pastor from Fuquay, take a community organizer from Raleigh, take a handful of construction workers, get a retired Wall Street guy, get the leader of the Black Lives Matter group in Chapel Hill, the head of the local NRA, get a pig farmer and a vegan, and you are approaching the craziness <laughs> of this group of people. Do you think they had disagreements? Yes. Do you think politics would come up? Would theology and religion come up? Yes. Would different personality types butt heads? Yes. In fact, there are many times where the Bible shows us some of these fights and these disagreements they got into. And so we hear about Jesus calling the disciples and we have this idealized version of what it must have been like in our heads, but in reality, it was very messy and it was very hard. But that's the type of commitment, the type of community that Jesus calls us to. Or we read about how awesome it was in the early church in Acts, and it sounds like this amazing just kumbaya fest, but if we keep reading, we learn that not everyone sold their possessions. Ananias and Sapphira didn't, they were liars. We hear that Peter is actually a racist, and Paul has to call him out. John Mark is a coward, and he leaves Paul and Barnabas, and most every single church that, that gets a letter written to them has these horrible, horrible moral failures. The Corinthians were promiscuous. They fought all the time. And so it wasn't this dream version that, of community that we make it out to be. And so what you need to know is that community, intentional, committed community, it is an extremely important part of your life as a Christ follower, but you also need to know that it's difficult and it's costly and it's awkward and it's tiring. And so we need to learn to drop this dream of community that we have in our heads in fact, that sort of idealism can, also, can actually be um, harmful. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship, he also wrote a book called Life Together. Buy it, read it, it's amazing, but he says this. The person who loves their dream of community will often destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. So what made these people stick it out? What made the disciples and the Christians in Acts and the other books stay committed to community even though it was difficult and it was nitty gritty and it wasn't this dream? Well, I think the answer is that the old saints figured out something that we have forgotten. And it's this, that there are certain things that community and community alone can do for us and can do in us. There are certain things that community just does better than anything else. And I have two of these, and then we'll close. The first is that community reveals us. Being a part of, uh, of community will eventually reveal who you really are. It reveals those parts of you that you would rather keep hidden. You can't hide your shortcomings and your weaknesses when you're committed to a community and you stick with it for the long haul. And that's probably scary for a lot of us. We don't really like that. You know, we spend time carefully crafting our social media profiles so we prevent, uh, present a version of ourselves that is successful or fun or beautiful or happy or smart or holy. What we like to do is hide who we really are. We don't want people to see that. And Jesus knows this. And so he calls us into an environment where all of that will be exposed. You know why? Because you can't work on things that you keep hidden in the dark. So if God's gonna get to work on you, you have to take those things that are in the dark and bring them out into the light so that he can start his work of transformation.
Some of the most meaningful times in my life have been when a close brother in Christ has called me to the carpet or called me out on something. And it's never comfortable, and it's not fun, but it's needed. I would not be who I am today, which isn't much, but if it weren't for those revealing sorts of moments. I remember as soon as we got married, we went to visit my brother-in-law and ended up sleeping on his couch for like nine months, and so I worked uh, construction, and uh, my immaturity and my habit to cut corners came out day in, day out, when I hung out with my brother-in-law, Michael. Uh, my tendency to isolate and to hide certain things in my life was revealed through some friends when we planted a church together, and we did that year in, year out. One of the best mentors I ever had understood this. When I was 21, I asked this older guy, no, I was, I was younger than that, I was 18, I think. I asked this older and wiser guy named Scott to mentor me, and so we worked at the same camp, and I just really respected him. So I walked up to Scott and said, Scott, man, I respect you, will you mentor me? You know what he said? He said, no, that's not what Christians are supposed to say. And so I was like, why, man, are you busy or something? You know what he said? He said, no, I don't wanna mentor you because you are a cocky, arrogant goober. And he didn't say goober. He said something I can't say from stage. <laughs> and I was like, dang, man, I don't know if I want you to mentor me. So I took a walk, and on that walk, I was like, you know what? I probably need someone like that in my life. So I went back to him, I'm like, that's the reason you should probably mentor me, because I didn't know that, and I don't wanna be that guy anymore. And he said, okay. And uh, through that relationship, a lot more was revealed and I was able to work on things. And it's not just the things that you already know about that you're hiding, but community reveals stuff inside your heart that you did not even know was there. You ever get in a fight with your spouse on the way to small group and you just wanna turn the car around, right? That's revealing. Why? Why do I not want to um, bring this to this community? Why do I want to pretend like my marriage is perfect? Why am I ashamed of having a disagreement? You should get to the bottom of that. You guys ever have a potluck in your small group? And you pick the main course and you're like, I'm making grandma's special lasagna and it's a secret recipe and you spend hours, you make multiple lasagnas and the other couples, they bring these amazing side um, and appetizer and stuff and then one couple walks in with a bag of chips and you're like, what? And they throw it on the table. It's not even the good time. It's not kettle cooked, it's like store brand. And, you're, and this anger rises up in your heart, like I brought lasagna, what's the deal with the chips? That's revealing. Why did I get so angry at the chips that weren't kettle cooked, right? Community brings that stuff up in us. See, your, your wife and your husband, they're not enough. Have you ever been out to eat with a couple and then you get in the car afterwards and you're like, can you believe the way she talked to him? Can you believe the way he treated her? Even in marriages, there's blind spots that you won't learn about until you commit to a community of people. So community reveals us, and it's a grace and a mercy of God. And then secondly, lastly, community redeems us. Community heals us. It's a big part of how God transforms us. Once all of that sin comes to the surface, you have this grace-filled environment of people that are committed to walking alongside of you as you're transformed by the Spirit. Some of you desperately want to change, don't you? And if you don't, your roommate or your spouse wants you to change. <laughs> and nothing has the power to change you like committing to a community. Uh, the year after Scott told me I was an arrogant goober, but not goober, um, I started going to college and I got accepted to, um, I saw they were looking for an electric guitar player. I saw a poster, so I got in the line and 
tried out to be an electric guitar player and they said, congratulations, you made this band. And I didn't know what it was, but it was, um, it was a full ride um, scholarship band and we would go to 60 to 70 different churches or youth events a year and we would recruit for um, a large Christian college in Virginia that's been in the news a lot recently. But, um, <laughs> so I left that camp as this cocky, arrogant goober and uh, for the next 11 months, we crammed 11 college students on the same tour bus and we did a California tour and a Texas tour and a Pennsylvania tour and a, and a Tennessee tour and we did all the, and we were, we were eating together and staying in the same houses together and it was just 11 months of constant community. Our, our old tour bus, we called it Shamu, it was actually James Brown's old tour bus, isn't that cool? Uh, there was a truck driver in Texas said, let me see the inside of that bus and so we let him, he's like, yeah, I used to drive for James Brown, this is his old tour bus. But I was stuck for almost a year with these people and so I went back to camp the next year you know what people said? They said, you've changed. I was like, in a bad way? What does that mean? They're like, no, you're, you're a little bit more humble. You don't seem as arrogant. You listen more. You talk less. And I didn't put this plan in place to transform into a mature person. That's just what community does, right? It's only in community where you can actually practice and learn how to serve others, how to be humble, how to listen before speaking, how to handle conflict, how to encourage, how to accept help, how to confess your sins, how to help someone who has confessed sins, how to be selfless, how to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And even practical things, you learn how to handle your finances, how to be generous, how to parent your kids, how to be a better spouse, basically how to be a mature human being. So community, like nothing else, has the amazing ability to transform us into the image of Christ. The authors of Slow Church, this is my last quote, I think, yeah, it is. Uh, they write this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow, people who leave do not grow. It's a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow that much at all. And I was thinking this week, not only does this type of community have the power to change us, but what we see in the Bible and what I've seen in my life is it actually has the power to change the world. Something weird you'll see in the New Testament is that the authors don't spend a whole lot of time telling us to go out and share the gospel. It's weird. And I learned this because I planted a church and really wanted my people to go and share the gospel and I couldn't find that many verses. They do mention it a few times, but it's mainly reserved for evangelists and apostles and pastors. There's actually a few books out there that try to make sense of it. But do you know what they do spend a lot of time telling us to do? They tell us to love one another. They spend a lot of time telling us to get in community and they tell us how to do community and they tell us don't get out of community. And I think it's because the New Testament authors knew, they, they knew the mission that Jesus has given us. Go and make disciples of all nations. And they know that there is nothing more, there is no more powerful form of evangelism and witness than a Jesus-filled community loving people and serving and forgiving one another. That's how the watching world gets to see how powerful the gospel is. Do you realize that? Before that, it's just a message. 
It's just another person's opinion, but when they see the way that it changes our lives, they stand up and they take notice. Jesus knew this. When he prayed for us a few thousand years ago, he said this, my prayer is not for the disciples alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so what Jesus says is that when we commit to community and we live out the one another's that we see in the Bible in front of a watching world, they take notice and they begin to think, man, they're different. They're selfless, they're humble, they're generous. And then they start to think, if that's what the gospel has the power to do, maybe it's true. Jesus must really be the son of God. And that's what I want. And you're gonna hear Mike's heart on this next week as well. But I desperately want this city and this state and this world to see the power of the gospel, especially with everything that we see going on in our world right now. And that, to see different types of people committed to one another, to see a group of people whose hope isn't in a governor or a president, but in a king and a kingdom, to see black and white and rich and poor and English speaking and Spanish speaking and married couples and high schoolers and single parents and young adults living out the one another's for all the world to see. You think that that would make a difference in the world? You think more people would believe in the power of the gospel? I do. And Mike's gonna talk more about that this week. But for now, what's your next step? What is it that God's asking you to do? Maybe it's to make your current small group a priority. Start showing up. Stop bringing chips unless they're kettle cooked, right? To get that excitement back again. Maybe it's time to step up and lead one of these groups. You've been around long enough. You can do this. It's your turn to step up and lead a group. Maybe it's to take that first step of community and commit to an online group or a group that meets here in the triangle. And that includes middle school. That includes high school. That includes adult. And become a part of a committed group of imperfect people taking steps towards Jesus. So, whatever step that is, take it. You're not gonna regret it. And I can't wait to um, see what Mike says next week. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for your word. It's given in love and it's true. Uh, thank you that you call us to community and thank you that you have, uh, through the cross, gotten rid of any division that would exist. Spirit, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those watching online, the hearts of the people in this room. Would you just create a loving people? Would you unite us? And we pray that as this city, as the triangle sees the way that we have been transformed into selfless and humble people that are serving others, that they would stand to take notice. Father, would, they, would you draw men and women to yourself through the way that we are united? So it's in the beautiful and matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.